This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate. Morena no Maikiti Korero, welcome to the catch up on Manawatu People's Radio. Tereo Irorangi o Natangata o Manawatu. It is a Friday morning and so we turn our attention to central government and on the phone this morning, MP for Rangatiki and uh, the slightly promoted uh, Ian McKelvey. Good morning to you. Hi, good morning. I'm not sure I'm promoted, but I'm still here. Well, it's according to, I mean, we can talk about this in more detail, but according to this, the, the reshuffle that Christopher Luxon did, uh, you're up five places. I mean, technically, I suppose still not in the, the, the numbered part, the top 20, but yeah, they say you're up five places uh, to 24th. Oh, they're kind. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I don't think it means much. Fair enough. Well, I mean, let, 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 let's start with that. Obviously, um, you were uh, quoted in the media as being a bit disappointed uh, about how this uh, latest leadership uh, change occurred. Uh, you've, been, you've been through five now. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I haven't been here that long. <laughs> no. Uh, well, at the, risk of sound, at the risk of sounding sort of uh, accusatory, are, are you the common denominator? Is there something about you that's making all these I, leaders I change? Hope, I hope not, and I sincerely hope I don't go through another one. <laughs> well, it seems yeah, to be... destructive, really. They, they don't... Uh, well, when I say destructive, it's disruptive wherever you lived, isn't it? You know, this sort of change, and um, it's certainly no different here than it is in business anywhere else. Did you? Did it have to happen, though? I mean, was Judith's conduct with regards to Simon Bridges just too far out of order to to maintain her leadership position? Oh, I think no doubt about that. I think the caucus made a very clear decision on that, and then uh, um, it was just a matter of getting the right person in the right place uh, from there on. And uh, and I think uh, we've done very well with that, and it, and it looks to have settled in very well since then. And I think that. Um, you know, the team's uh, pulling together. So that's a good sign. I, I, I know you will have a set answer to this, but I feel uh, I need to ask it anyway. I mean, Christopher Luxon is very green with regards to Parliament. He has not been there long at, uh, at all. Um, was he the best candidate um, for for the role? I mean, Simon Bridges had put his hand up again. I think there was a couple other people that were looking promising as well, but the, cau- the, 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 the caucus went with Luxon, but is, is is that the right move? Oh, yes, I'm sure it is. And I think that if you, you know, I think I think this place for mine uh, needs to change. Um, and I think uh, I haven't seen a great deal of change in my time here, but I do think that that a new person with new ways has got the potential to change the way things uh, work in this uh, in this building. And I think that I think from New Zealand's perspective, it would be better if we could get. Uh, consensus on a whole lot more things and we had a bill go through Parliament this morning or, or it went through its committee stage uh, on housing which had a consensus between National and Labour and I think I think that it would be it, it would be positive in the future if we could take some of the uh, antagonism out of Parliament and I think that that's the advantage you get with someone who's not been here too long and not uh, uh, I guess uh, made enemies so to speak and, and then and they don't seem to forget them <laughs> 
Well, no, I mean, and this is because I, I was going to say from what I've seen of Christopher Luxon so far and what I have seen from Nicola Willis for a while now is that less antagonistic, more constructively critical approach to to opposition. Uh, and I figured that would suit your style more because, I mean, admittedly, the past couple of weeks, you have been quite forthright in your, 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 your uh, concerns with what the government's doing. But generally, you're quite happy to reach out to the other side of the, the debating chamber and, and happy to work with people and don't tend to lash out so easily. Well, no, and I, th- I think that I think that there's good reason for mine to, to um, I guess, make this place much more constructive. And I think I think that's where I'd like to have seen it go. In fact, I think I talked about that in my maiden speech, which was some time ago. Now, uh, I'd like to see it go that way, and I, I think that we'll see that under this leadership. And I think we'll see that with the construct he's got around his team as well because then there's a lot of new faces there and there's some very promising new faces not very far away as well. I guess the one thing is, you know, and previous leaders are still in uh, the shadow cabinet and in the wider the opposition party. Um, and, you know, Christopher's uh, repeatedly saying, we've turned a page, we've turned a page, we're all united are you really, though? I mean, he can be as, as great a manager as, as he, he says he is, but at the same time, you've got all these personalities. I'm sure Judith will be upset about a number of things that have happened, uh, the reinstatement of Simon Bridges as well, overturning her decision straight away. There's got to be some baggage there still. Uh, yes, but I don't think that's, um, I don't think that's critical, and I think, I think that... Um I mean, critical. <laughs> That's what I mean. Um, I, I think that I think these things are different in in Parliament than they are in normal life and business. Because you know, this is a very political place, and it's here. For, uh, we're here for that reason. And I think when you get to a point where you, uh, the way forward is to provide the country with a constructive, uh, solid opposition. And I think all of us realise that's necessary. And I, and I know that Judith thinks that as well. Well, and and we saw uh, Christopher's uh, maiden uh, attempt uh, at that with uh, Prime Minister's Prime Minister's questions. Uh, He had a little bit of a stumble, but uh, people seem to think he he did score a couple of points throughout the the process. Oh, I I think that that's um, early days from that respect. And um, as he said, when he was... uh, um when he was made the leader in his very first um, statement, I think, to the media was that he's going to make some mistakes along the way. And um, and uh, I don't think he's really made those mistakes yet either. But, um, you know, it's inevitable in this business that you're going to make some mistakes. But he's, he's got such a nice manner about him. He's just a calm operator. And I think that makes a big difference. So have you met with Chris and, and Nicola with regards to your responsibilities in the National Party moving forward? Were there any changes in, in what you, you've been doing up to now? No, I've got. I'm. Uh, I'm obviously too old to change. Um, I've got uh, exactly the same roles I had uh, prior. Well, actually, I've lost one. I had. I've got three or four of my same roles I had before um, the change in leadership, and so I remain uh, the spokesperson for racing, seniors, and forestry, and I still chair uh, the governor's governance and administration select committee, which is a um, job I, I quite enjoy. That job as well. I have. Uh, given up my place on primary production and that's because we need to bring some young uh, 
rural stock through, I suppose, for want of a better word, and and uh, I think it's a very logical step. Fair enough. Um, let's have a look at some uh, local issues, if we can, Ian, because there's, there's a couple of things that occurred to me. Um, firstly, uh, Palmerston North featured in central government uh, discussion, and this was about uh, changing the, the way that some land has been uh, earmarked or tagged in order to make way for some housing. Yes, and so the, the the reserve land, which was the Manawatu Bowling Club, most people of my age will remember it as, on the corner of uh, um, of Fitzherbert Avenue and Park Road, uh, that the council have been wanting to do something with that for some time, and it's, it's virtually laid there um, doing nothing since the um, road was altered there some years ago, probably some 15 years ago, I think. And and uh, so that to, to do that, they needed to change a couple of acts, or one act actually. There was an op- option to change two, but one was necessary to change so that they could get on and and, um, and develop that land or sell it to a developer to build houses on that land. And and so Tangi Utakiri put that through um, the first reading through the Parliament yesterday, and uh, that was a uh, well, it was supported by everyone logically. But the interesting thing for Tangi is he had a, bu- a bill himself in the House um, a couple of weeks before, or, or a few weeks before, in his local government. Um, uh, Amendment bill, which which um, deals with the pecuniary interests of local government elected uh, people, and uh, interestingly, he spoke first on that. I spoke second on it because it was going to the governance administration select committee. The, the same thing happened yesterday, but not it didn't go to governance and administration. Interestingly, because the previous time it had gone there, <laughs> it got sent back to the Palmerston City Council because it wasn't done properly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> but that was some years ago, and so this yes, that's gone to the Environment Select Committee. So. <laughs> He obviously thought there was a better place to put it. <laughs> Fair enough. But uh, it's good to see uh, that uh, we, we were garnering some attention there because the, the, the housing crisis is, is – I mean, the National Party recognises as well, doesn't it, that there is a housing crisis. They're not avoiding that word. No, I think, I think interestingly, though, I think this is going to – yes, I agree with that. I think, interestingly, it's going to turn around very quickly um, – and so I think if you look at what's happening with migration uh, and immigration, uh, a dramatic turnaround in that respect. We're starting to lose people from New Zealand now as opposed to gaining seventy or 80,000 a year. And so the, the demand for housing is going to change quite quickly. But you're none, nonetheless right. We need to deal with, the, uh, I guess, the issue of what we might term social housing particularly. And, of course, to, to provide more social housing, it doesn't matter where you build the house because you can always um, uh, add to the social housing stock. But if you can't, if you, you can't if you haven't got enough houses. No, and, and supply and, and demand are the, the age-old and, and critical factors in this. It strikes me that every plan I've heard from the, the, the current government um, it just doesn't seem to be enough to even begin to address the current problem, let alone what the predictions say the problem will be like in, in five to ten years. Um, I, granted, you're saying that you know things have changed and we're, and we're losing people from New Zealand, so that might be a, a factor. But even so, the waiting lists are huge. Yeah, and they're growing as well, unfortunately. And I, I think... Uh that's a product of a couple of other things, though. One of them is the fact that we're less and less people living in each house nowadays. And that's a very interesting statistic to watch because it drops. And I think in the Manawatu district, we're something like 1.7 people per house. 
And that's a pretty extraordinarily low number. So that's one of the issues that's going on. The other issue, of course, is we just can't get enough builders. And, and the fact that we're not letting um, tradesmen and people like that into the country is just causing uh, more and more trouble for the building industry. So, I mean, what is the solution for that? Because, well, and, and compounding this issue as well is house prices, which have skyrocketed in, in a sort of unfathomable way. You know, during a pandemic, one wouldn't have expected the property market to rocket, but there it is. Uh, the, the average house price in New Zealand getting close to a million dollars, isn't it now? I mean, that's insane. It's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. But that, that to some extent, aside from... Uh, <laughs> I don't want to blame the government for everything, but if we looked at the government's policy of freeing money into the economy, or the Reserve Bank's, I guess, freeing of money into the economy. It just drove the house price. In the last two years, it's driven dramatically higher. But the other issue that's driving house prices is the cost of new builds, and the, and the fact that a new build costs so much more adds a whole lot more um, value to the house you've already got. And that's caused by the massive inflation and, and um, building material prices and actually the shortage of them as well is is the problem the the whole nature of of home ownership uh in new zealand that everyone must own a home preferably two because you know superannuation and and kiwi saver is not enough to live on in retirement uh it, is does there need to be a shift there do there need to be improvements in the way uh when people retire they can survive without having to rely on home ownership that's a very interesting topic, Fraser. I've just been doing I'm doing a lot of work on that myself, very simply because I'm a spokesperson for seniors. And if you look at uh, if you look at our superannuitants, the 65s and over, the big challenge in the, uh, in the next few years is going to be the number of them getting to 65 without a house, and so consequently no asset and no savings. And the reason they've got no savings is there was no compulsory um, superannuation in New Zealand. Uh, or compulsory savings schemes in New Zealand, uh, as they have been in Australia, as there was prior to Rob Muldoon, interestingly, scrapping it in New Zealand. And, and of course, KiwiSave is too late for my generation because we haven't been in it long enough to have um, saved enough money to live on. So it's a very topical issue, the one you've just raised. And I think, I think the big key to this is a compulsory superannuation scheme. And, of, and I'm not talking about the government super, um, the government super, I'm talking about compulsory private superannuation, in other words, you own it yourself, um, I think that we're going to have to save for our retirement in a much better manner than we have. And, and I think that's, you know, KiwiSaver needs to be made compulsory and it needs to be probably altered a little bit to give it a bit more uh, security as well. But so, so are, you advocating for, are you advocating for people to uh, be compulsorily involved in KiwiSaver but also uh, compelled to enter into a private scheme as well? No, no, no. Sorry, KiwiSaver is effectively a private scheme because it's your own superannuation, mm. as opposed to the government, the government superannuation scheme, which, of which, of course, there's one, but there's also the superannuation fund, which was um, uh, the Labor government of 2002, I think, put that in place. Uh, Michael Cullen, the Cullen Fund, they call it, uh, which was put there to to um, build up money to pay for superannuation in later years. But, but actually, it's never going to be sufficient because I think, I don't remember the year it comes, you know, the first payments come out of something like 20, uh, 2031 or something like that, but even then it will only pay for 8% of our total, total superannuation cost on that day and so really that's not going to cut the mustard at all so we've got to find other ways and, and obviously um, compulsory um, KiwiSaver for example is, is one of the ways we'd go.
Mm. Um, we are here with Ian McKelvey, MP for Rangitiki on the catch-up. If you want to listen to this or previous editions of the catch-up series, just head to the website npr.nz forward slash show forward slash catch-up. We're also on accessmedia.nz, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your online listening. Um, sticking with local issues, Ian, but tied in with one of your uh, your portfolios, you are a spokesperson for forestry. Uh, we've been speaking to a few people on the catch-up uh, with regards to the new Kiwi Rail Freight Hub uh, that is uh, hopefully, um, well, for, for some people hopefully and for others not so much, um, going to be in Bunnythorpe. Um, and it strikes me whenever I go over the railway bridge in Milson and look down, it is just, it seems the primary use of the current uh, rail yards is forestry. It is just uh, timber and lumber as far as the eye can see. Um, how is the forestry industry coping with the current yard? Are they, are they advocating for this new big freight hub to go in to give them more room as well? Uh, they'll certainly, they would certainly want to be part of that, yes. Uh, and, and also we have um, forestry coming out of Martin, Fielding and Whanganui as well, just in our region, on, on rail. Um, Yes, so they, they are, but of course right now we've got a, um, a significant downturn in the price of logs. And while they're still uh, going out, in fact I saw a log ship in the harbour uh, this week in Wellington, while they're still going out, um, they're not going out at anything like the rate they were. And so so <laughs> the logs we've been seeing in Palmerston North might start to drop away a bit in the future. Well, and what do we do with them in that case? If the, if the market's not there for them, do they get stockpiled? Oh. Do we use them uh, domestically? There's a couple of challenges. Well, no. So the great thing about forestry is you can leave it in the you can leave it in the ground. Yes. Um, so, so the the problem with that is, and it's a significant problem, is you end up with all those logging uh, crews who um, are pretty skilled operators because they're driving some um, very fancy machinery these days, and all those logging truck drivers suddenly not having uh, work. So so yeah. While the trees get left on the ground, that's so that solves that problem. You, you then end up with a whole lot of people out of work and and they'll leave the industry and that'll, that'll be very challenging for the industry in the future. The other thing that, ha- that could happen, of course, it forces the price of local, uh, locally produced um, wood up because the local mills only use uh, the butt logs, basically, of these trees. The rest of it's exported, and that's the great advantage of this export market is that the good stuff can stay in New Zealand and the rest goes. But when you've only got the good one uh, being sold and the, t- and the rest not... It suddenly changes the um, uh, the complexion of that business as well, and so it could force the price of timber even higher than it is now. Oh, good lord! Because I mean, timber prices are pretty high at the moment. They are very high, and that's caused a little bit by demand, a little bit by the fact we can't supply the market because of the demand, and a little bit by the fact that we've had some very high log prices in recent months. But mm. that's changed now. Uh, Ian, we've gone almost 19 minutes uh, this morning without, I don't think, mentioning the pandemic once. And whilst it might be nice to try and get through an entire interview one day without doing it, uh, there are a couple of uh, things that have happened. The the Auckland uh, boundary, uh, Christopher Luxon has been very vocal that the Auckland boundary should not exist, in his opinion. Um, and also uh, MIQ changes proposed next year. Um, uh, what's your position on, on these two? Two issues. Oh, I think clearly the Auckland boundary issue. I, I absolutely support um, his view, and I think that even the Ministry of Health interestingly support his view. Uh, 
So, so that's a very interesting. Um, no, that that's an interesting one, and perhaps you can uh, help me clear this up because uh, Jacinda Ardern did did challenge that assumption that the the the. The Director General, uh, Ashley Bloomfield, supported that because that was based on going to the traffic light system when the entire country was 90% vaccinated, which is a different situation. We've gone into the traffic light system. I think Wanganui still isn't at 90%. And so uh, Dr. Bloomfield's uh, view was subtly different in this scenario than the simple it wasn't required if we went in when everyone was at 90%. That, that, that's the line, isn't it? That's her line, yes, but that's not his line. <laughs> um, clearly, Chris Bishop, uh, in the course of his questioning of the ministry and the minister, gets the information he gets, and um, and I think uh, Christopher Luxon, I don't think Christopher Luxon's views made on the basis, not only of that advice, of course, because when you look at the the abnormalities around uh, the border and the, and the odd way in which it operates, and the fact that we're, um, well, Auckland's better than 90% vaccinated, um, I think the risk is very low of anything worse happening. And, of course, we've now got a case in Taumanui overnight, so it's getting closer and closer to uh, moving down the island. Well, I mean, that, that, that's uh, the uh, thing, though. What, what, is it not – maybe it might not be spelled out in the traffic light system, but is it not common sense to go – the vast majority of coronavirus in New Zealand is in Auckland, and whilst everyone in Auckland seems to be vaccinated, they can still carry and transmit the disease. Shouldn't we give the rest of the country as much opportunity to get the vaccination rates as high as possible before Aucklanders can uh, move around the rest of the country? Isn't that the purpose of the boundary? Well, that was the purpose of the boundary, but I think, to be fair... The rest of the country's had as much opportunity to get vaccinated as Auckland have. And um, the fact they've chosen not to for for various reasons, um, uh, I don't think that Auckland can pay the cost. Well, no, but that, I mean, that's... The country's inadequacy, and that's what's happening. Yes, the country has had adequate opportunity, but just because they haven't taken it doesn't mean that the government can knock the boundary down because the government still has a responsibility to the health service to make sure that it is not overrun. Uh, yeah, but there's no question of that happening, and that's the basis on which Ashley Bloomfield made his recommendations. Uh, that the fact that the health, the health system would not be and wasn't overrun, and and I think that um, you know I think Auckland, whether we like it or not, has suffered enormously, basically to protect the rest of the country. A fact we should all be very grateful for. I'm sure you agree on that one. <laughs> well, yes. Yes, I think so, but I also think it's equally unfortunate that, that that's you know it's, it's continuing to just penalise the people of Auckland, basically. Yeah, well, yes, but I mean, for, for, I, I, I'm surprised that, that uh, you have information that suggests that when we let all the Aucklanders out and the virus does take hold across the country as it will, that you, you're you're un, under the uh, impression that the health system won't be overrun because by all accounts well, there are... Ashley Bloomfield's, that's his words, not mine. Yeah, but I mean, we're hearing healthcare workers uh, terrified uh, down in Queenstown, etc. They're really worried that they're not going to be able to cope. Are, are we to dismiss that because Ashley has a different opinion? Uh, well... <laughs> Governments can only take the view from their advisors. They can't take a 
view. Like if we tried to take everyone's view into account, we'd be in all sorts of trouble, wouldn't we? So, so the advice you get given, and you'd hope that it's been uh, a very soundly based advice. Mm. Um, also, just uh, briefly on MIQ, uh, next year apparently if you are double vaxxed uh, and you will not need to go into MIQ, this is uh, oversimplification, um, if you're a New Zealander you won't need to go into MIQ and I think uh, the rest of the world's travellers follow on in April, you will just need to do some self-isolation. Um, you were advocating for a, a, an overhaul of MIQ, is this the right way to go? Oh, it's a, it's a good start, I think. Um, but but I think also we're still uh, so slow to change. And I think uh, I think that the penalty, and we saw some of the um, just yesterday who couldn't attend, who couldn't get to their father or mother in time, and they died. Um, I think I think there's just too tough this stuff, you know. And I think it, it's just it's doing a, a almost irreparable damage to people that that maybe the virus wouldn't do. And so I think we've got to consider all these other issues when we look at um, the likes of MIQ and how it operates and how many how many vacancies are available and all that sort of thing. It's very difficult, it's like, very like the aged care sector, where effectively we've locked a whole lot of old people, a generation almost of old people up, unable to see their families and all sorts of things going on there. Uh, this was yeah. all. This was always the line, though, wasn't it? I mean, the, 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 this this is a global pandemic. In order to protect ourselves serious sacrifices have to be made. Some people have to make more than others, but it is for the greater good. And if we hadn't gone to the lengths that we had, a lot more people would be dead now, wouldn't they? Uh, I, don't, I don't for a minute doubt that the initial sacrifices were, were worthwhile. The argument is what's happening now and how these sacrifices are being made now and what's actually happening uh, with the with the virus now. And I think that I think to continue or to perpetuate the isolation of old people in New Zealand uh, in the manner that it's being even this week, uh, I think is extraordinary and, and very unfortunate and, and um, I think very unfair on those people. Fair enough. Uh, Ian McKelvey, uh, MP for Rangitiki. We are out of time on the catch-up this morning. Uh, just This will be our last catch-up until 2022. Uh, if we cast our mind back to the end of 2020, everyone was very optimistic and, and hopeful that 2021 would, would turn things around. As it turns out, arguably, it's been worse. Uh, what are your hopes for 2022, Ian? Well, I think they're the same as they were last year, although I'm a bit more optimistic now. I, th- I think that we will get, um, we won't get back to normal, obviously, but I think things will improve for us as we go forward. And, and I just hope that, um, you know, we manage whatever the virus does to the, to the country in the future and also that, um, that we get people back uh, into, into work and back to school and all those sort of things as quickly as we can. Marvellous. Uh, Ian McKelvey, thank you for joining us on the catch-up this morning and have a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And the same to you, Fraser, and thank you. There we go, Ian McKelvey joining us on the catch-up this morning. We will be back tomorrow at... Uh, not tomorrow, good grief, that's Saturday. We don't do that. Monday at half past eight with another edition of the catch-up series. Do join us then. Bye for now. If you're a fan of NPR, listening to our podcasts and live stream has never been easier. Just search for accessmedia.nz on the App Store or Google Play and download the app with the Kiwi Fruit logo. 
Once you've got it, pick Manawatu People's Radio from the list of stations and go find your new favourite show.